Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. She is Stephanie McNeil. It is Monday, and days later, I am still thinking about Oprah eating that unseasoned chicken. You're watching AM to DM. Yeah, it was something that you were <laughs> tweeting a lot about. I saw people all over my timeline tweeting yeah. a lot about. But just in case you guys didn't see it, you were too busy having Somehow. fun all weekend to sit on Twitter. Over the weekend, Spencer Althaus, who works with us here at BuzzFeed, tweeted this clip from the Oprah Winfrey show way back in the day. And Spencer said, I often think about the time Oprah did a cooking segment with a woman whose chicken recipe won a million dollars. And Oprah's jaw dropped when she tasted it and realized the lady didn't even add seasoning. A million dollar chicken recipe. Let's see the clip. I think, did we add salt and pepper? I think we needed salt and pepper. No, there's no salt and pepper in it. But you can add it yourself. I, I, I would just like... I think it's delicious is what it really is. <laughs> Did we add some pepper? Jeff Yang tweeted this while the backstory on this million dollar chicken recipe, it's a twist on chicken and waffles using frozen spinach and dunkable waffle sticks with no salt and pepper. How did Oprah not throw the plate at this lady? Okay, so what's going on here? We know that this was a part of like a Pillsbury cooking contest, so she had to use some ingredients. So that explains how we get to the dunkable waffles. But yes. you had a good point about spinach. Yes, so some of the other ingredients in this is maple syrup, okay. peach preserves, and Worcester sauce. Now imagine that you had with me into the Worcester sauce. waffles yeah. and spinach. Like, I do not want to eat jelly with- It's all mixed. Uh, Oh, gross. Peach, That's so gross. Like peach preserves here. Okay, so like there's potential. I see the potential. Yeah, if it's like a sweet, maybe like breakfast dish, yeah, but I don't but really get the spinach. That's not why, what why spinach? And listen, the clip is like, I tweeted, it's like, it's like she's like Oprah's giving you comedy. She's giving you black Twitter shade before black Twitter existed because this is like 2006. <laughs> and then the woman looks like she's in the scene from the hours. She's giving you Julianne Moore. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's like, it's funny. It's kind of sad. It's also like, what were you thinking? I feel really bad for the woman she looks really upset i feel like her face is like me at like any social gathering yeah. like i would love this is one of those things where people like go back and re revisit a moment for pop culture i would love to read an interview with that woman now you know i bet you we could find her but here's my question she won a million dollars hey would you take a million dollars if it also meant let's go back to you know the heyday of oprah winfrey show you meant you had to go on oprah and have a humiliating moment like that of course i would i would do almost <laughs> anything for a million dollars i would like make out with a subway pole for a million dollars like I would do it for $1,000, let's be real. I'm like, wow. I don't know. Okay, I, I would girl. do, I would, there, there's very little I wouldn't do for a million dollars. $1,000? Would you do it for $1,000? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, oh my I God, would. Taxes? I would. Children. Okay. Well, and is, is it pre or post Twitter? Pre Twitter. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, I would probably post do it post Twitter. Twitter video, could y'all imagine if this video clip had happened now in real time? Oh my God. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Why do you think Twitter is so obsessed with that video of Oprah and the chicken? I've watched it like eight times. Sound on, sound off. Tweet us your theory for why it's so watchable using the hashtag AM to DM. I That's think it's just because Oprah is like so nice and she clearly is caught off guard, but then she's a professional. There's I don't a little know. Shade there too. I live we, there. we can do the whole show on it, but we gotta <laughs> move on. We gotta get to the other news. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed Deputy Global News Director Ryan Broderick. Paris police and yellow jacket protesters clashed amid tear gas on the Champs-Élysées. Ryan joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hello. How's it going? I'm a little tired. My sinuses are a little blocked up, but I'm okay. Is, is that from the, the riots in Paris? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they love tear gas, so there was a lot of that. Um, it, was a long, it was a long Saturday. Okay. All right. 
Well, you've been covering the riots, as you said. Here's just one video you shot while there. So, didn't the French government give in to the Yellow Jackets, who are the protesters' demands? So why are the protests still going? I'm finding this one really hard to follow. Sure, it's very confusing, actually. So the whole protest movement started around fuel taxes in France. Um, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, has now walked back, saying he will not rise, raise taxes anymore. But by that point, this thing has spiraled completely out of control. So the protesters that I spoke to on Saturday are from all walks of life, believe all kinds of things. Um, it's now kind of turned into a full-on movement uh, calling for the resignation of Macron. I don't think this will end with him still in office, although if he were to resign, that would be insane. It's just that people are very, very angry, and I don't think they're angry about anything in particular anymore. Mm. Liberté, égalité, insanité was the lower third term. <laughs> um, I was curious, like, Ryan, again, you have been all over the world reporting for BuzzFeed. If anyone has experience with covering, like, riots like this, it's, it's you. Um, I just wonder, could you give us a sense of what's it like being on the streets of Paris with your phone, covering a new story like this? I mean, there were, we just saw, like, fires on the streets there. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> it's not easy. Um, the, the main focus on Saturday was trying to uh, figure out exactly who was kind of leading the, the violence because there's been a lot of accusations uh, saying that the police are being more violent than the protesters or vice versa. So I was trying to kind of follow that. Um, but when things get really out of control, you don't have a lot of options. Uh, it became particularly dangerous later in the day in Paris uh, because the police were trying very hard to keep protesters from meeting each other. So I remember at one point, like I turned a corner and protesters are just like burning a car and smashing a Starbucks and then the police run in and it becomes a, basically a street fight. And it, it can get very, very crazy, very, very fast, um, especially when you're in a country where you don't particularly speak the language fluently. Um, it, things can just get very lopsided very fast. So uh, the, the best advice, I guess, if you find yourself in a Parisian riot is to um, get away from the tear gas as fast as possible. Oh, honey, I would yeah, not be I, on the street. I definitely would, yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Okay, can you clear up one more thing for me? Okay, so Macron was just, it seems like he was just elected, right? How did this all go downhill so fast? Or has he, was he really elected a really long time ago and we just like have been so caught up in all of the Trump stuff, we haven't been paying attention? Or when did it go from him being, becoming the new leader of France to then it, everyone hating him all of a sudden? Well, Macron is kind of like Trudeau in Canada, where like he's like a very cute international figure, but like not very well liked at home. Uh, Macron, especially so, he's pretty much despised in France, and that was kind of from the beginning, um, because he his big idea was to loosen, um, you know, protections around workers' rights and and tax and tax breaks for the rich, and sort of make things easier to turn France into the Silicon Valley of Europe. And that did not go down very well. He's also just considered all around arrogant. Like he has compared himself to God multiple times and he likes to call himself Jupiter, like in reference to Zeus. So like, he's kind of, um, he's kind of a detestable figure to the French, I think in a lot of ways. And I don't think it would have taken much for a massive protest movement to spiral out of control around him, but it definitely was jumpstarted by a lot of Facebook activity. And ultimately, the financial inequality that's happening in the country has just reached a point where I think people are done. 
and Macron is the face of that inequality. So he does a lot of cute stuff with Trump, like internationally, but at home, like he's deeply, deeply hated. I think he's one of the most hated presidents in a long time there. So it's interesting seeing foreign leaders through the prism of the United States, where of yeah. course we're everything we say about Trudeau or Macron is actually a commentary on Trump. But we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Get some decongestant. Yeah, seriously. Feel better. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Southpaw. On Friday evening, federal prosecutors for the first time said the president had directed illegal hush money payments to women who were claiming to be his mistresses. By Sunday, the chiefs of staff of both POTUS and his VP had tendered their resignations. So it felt like a quiet weekend. A quiet weekend, very chill. Well, joining us now to talk about all of this and more is BuzzFeed News Justice reporter Zoe Tillman. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning. Ooh, girl, I'm glad we got you on staff because there is so <laughs> much to cover and you're so great at breaking us down. Let's start with the news about Cohen. Uh, what do we know now based on new reporting? So um, the first thing that we always want to remember is that there are two different cases that involve Michael Cohen, who is the president's former personal attorney. Um, there is a case out of the Southern District of New York, uh, federal prosecutors in Manhattan, and that's all of the Stormy Daniels, campaign payments, other shady financial things that Michael Cohen was involved in over the year. That's that case. So we put that bucket over there. And then there's special counsel, special counsel Mueller's case, um, and that has to do with newer claims that uh, Michael Cohen lied to Congress about a planned project in Trump Tower. Um, and that's really where we finally saw a connection with the Russia investigation directly. And what Mueller's office is saying is that in August 2017, Michael Cohen wrote letters to the Senate saying, you know what, discussions about Trump Tower Moscow, those ended in January 2016, very early in the campaign, nothing else about it. And now Michael Cohen has told prosecutors that was a lie and that actually discussions about Trump Tower Moscow were going well into June of 2016, um, which puts that squarely in the heart of the campaign as Trump is securing the nomination as the Republican candidate. There are still discussions in the company that he's running about doing deals with Moscow and with the Russian government. Um, so that's sort of where we are with Michael Cohen and those two different cases. So which one is he going to answer for first? So right now they're proceeding on the same track. What we got on Friday were sentencing memos from both prosecutors in Manhattan and Mueller's office telling the judge who's going to the same judge who's going to be handling sentencing in both cases, I think at the same time, um, you know, what they think he should get. And so prosecutors in New York said, you know, yes, he cooperated, but not as fully as he could have cooperated. So his sentencing guidelines range is, I believe, 51 to 63 months. They're saying, you know, he cooperated, so we're thinking something a little lower, maybe in the 42-month, about three and a half years range. That's what they're going with. Um, and Mueller's office didn't take a position on it. They basically kind of deferred over to SDNY and said, you know, whatever they say, it's probably fine. Whatever you want to give him in our case, that can run sort of at the same time as whatever he's doing in the other case. Um, so we've got a sentencing hearing set for later this month, and we'll see where it goes from there. 
Thank you, Zoe. That really actually explained a lot of it to me that I was so confused calm, about. So calm, so accessible. Yeah. Thank you. You're the I'm best. I'm just making it up as I go along, guys. <laughs> I don't really know what's going on. Who knows what's going on? I don't know. I, <laughs> I wish I could follow it as well as you guys do. But we got to turn now to Manafort. Mm. Here's a tweet from you, Zoe. Special counsel prosecutors, Manafort told multiple discernible lies. These were not instances of mere memory lapses. So what are they saying that he actually lied about? Um, it's a whole laundry list of things. Uh, basically, you know, Paul Manafort pleaded guilty to sort of a, a broad range of financial crimes. And as part of the plea deal, he agreed to cooperate with the special counsel's office. And then a couple weeks ago, we got sort of this bombshell filing from Mueller's office saying that they accuse him of lying after he signed the plea deal. Um, and they say now that he lied about contacts with the Trump administration. You know, we don't know who, but some kind of efforts to contact Trump going into the middle of this year. Um, they say that he lied about communications with his longtime Ukrainian-Russian associate who maybe allegedly reportedly has some ties to Russian intelligence, Konstantin Kalimnik, lying about Kalimnik's role in this alleged scheme to try and interfere with witnesses in uh, Manafort's case earlier this year. They say that he lied about certain business dealings uh, related to his, his own personal business. Um, so they say that he lied about a lot. They also say that he lied about something, we don't know what, related to another DOJ investigation. I would say roughly half of this filing was redacted. So we actually don't have a whole lot of detail about the nature of what he was lying about. We just know sort of the broad strokes of these very different subject areas where they say that he lied over the past uh, three or four months since pleading guilty. Okay, here's my big question, Zoe. Um, both looking at Cohen and Manafort, a lot of this, again, dropped on a Friday night. A lot of us were out celebrating our weekends and were like trying to process this. If there was one detail or aspect of the YouTube <laughs> of this new reporting that, you know, people walking into the office this morning, you know, kind of looking forward to a water cooler conversation about this, what would be one significant detail to go, this is worth focusing on, this was surprising? I think what we're starting to finally see is really a circling around this idea of the connection between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. You know, for the longest time, the line from the Trump administration has been, there's no evidence of collusion. This is all a witch hunt. There was no, you know, trying to downplay any kind of connection between Russia and the Trump campaign, which is at the core of what Mueller was tasked with doing. And we're now seeing, if you sort of imagine the, the corkboard with strings going between all these key players, we're seeing sort of thicker lines between Trump, the campaign, people immediately working around him, advising him, directly involved. These are not ancillary people to the campaign. These are his personal lawyer, um, his campaign chair, who Mueller's office is saying had very direct connections and open lines of communication with individuals in Russia connected with the Russian government. So I think we're starting to see some more direct lines being drawn between these different key players in this whole situation. Okay, that is getting a little tighter. Well, Zoe, as always, thank you for your clarity. Thanks for joining us this morning. Sure thing. Later in the show, Saeed sits down with Tiny. Excited to meet her. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! 
Okay, I have to shout out Brianna who tweeted me that my thing about doing anything for money is a mood. She said, slide me 500 bucks, I will absolutely let Oprah chew that chicken like that in my face. Oh my God. 100%. I... Especially pre-Twitter. Oh Pre-Twitter, it's like, do whatever you want. No one's ever going to know. Yeah. I don't know. My embarrassment, my, my, I can't. It would be too much. I care just about Oprah. When you, when you I don't feel, want to disappoint Oprah feel on live like television. When you like the heat like, rush to your cheeks, just think about the money and <laughs> okay. what you're going to buy. I'll try, I'll try it. Okay. <laughs> well, let's get into these fire tweets. This first one is from Ghost. <laughs> Flicks cigarette across the table after a long talk. I'm just like adding to this tweet. Here's the thing. If Santa knows when kids are naughty or nice, then he knew Rudolph was being bullied. So true. That's true. That's a I've always felt. You know, Santa needs to uh, account for his sins on this one. Yeah, it's true. It's true. He, he's, he's not blameless on this at all. Yeah, at all. And at also, all. I like the new little fire tweet graphic. Right, that, like that was gone. It's yeah. a whole new thing. It's a whole oh, new thing. All right. Jay Lee. Woo! <laughs> this one is so funny. I saw this tweet everywhere over the weekend. She wrote, my sister is in a sorority, and honestly, if I see one more post of how much she loves her big... Okay, I am your actual big sister. Sorry I don't write you little notes about how you fell from a rainbow and sprouted into a tulip. But I taught you how to wear a tampon, so have some respect. I mean, that's, that's, that's news you I can think use. it's hilarious. Now, I don't know a lot about Greek culture, so but I do remember in college hearing girls say my big, and I was like, who Yeah, I, I was not in a sorority, but I have friends who were. And yeah, it's a, you know, you have a big sister who's supposed to guide you through the sorority, and then... You know, she has a big sister, and she has a big sister, so then you have, like, your grand big and your great-grand big That's and all so this weird. stuff. I want to hear from people who did Black Greet Life. I wonder what, the, what like, the Black Sword, like, yeah. any AKAs watching, I think Mary Wilson might be one. Let us know. I'm yeah. curious. It's basically kind of just, like, a mentorship program. Yeah. But, yeah, the, 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 there's a lot of, like, you know, big, big, and, like, yeah. some people take it, like, really over the top. <laughs> I'm good. Okay, this next tweet is from Revenance Sage. Okay. <laughs> Black parents will drop you off or pick you up, but they'll be damned if you're getting both. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, was true for me in school. Yeah, what's that about? I don't know. Also, um, no, no shade, Sage, but I want to know what's up with the capitalizing the first word in every sentence. Yeah, that's like how your dad writes on Facebook. <laughs> Are we like taking that back? Is that part of like norm Yeah, reclaiming it? I don't know. Let yeah, us know. Yeah, like how like norm core is so <laughs> cool now. <laughs> slid it in there. Yeah. Right. Ready for a tweet today? Yes. This comes from Swagga. Swag. <laughs> you ever put a $7.02 pack of chicken back and got a pack that was $6.98? I did this yesterday. Literally did. did this yesterday. Yeah. Wow. I haven't done it because, as you know, I don't cook, so no need for me to be looking at chicken prices. But I felt <laughs> like when I was a kid, like at the grocery store family, I think I... Well, yeah, it's just like it's like more palatable to your brain. It's like, oh, I can't spend $7. Even though, like, I, like, so then I sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm going to get the, like, cheaper, cheaper, like, salmon, for example. Mm -hmm. But then you, like, you kick it out of the package. You're like, oh, this is tiny. This is why it's cheaper because it's by weight. Then you're like, oh, well, I just, like, played myself, and now I have nothing to eat for dinner. It's like watching an astronaut talk about the problems on, like, moonwalking. I'm <laughs> Fascinating how the other half lives. Well, we were, of course, talking about that clip of Oprah eating some chicken, unseasoned chicken, earlier this morning. Uh, let's take it to the timeline. Here we go. Moment of truth. How do you season your chicken? Tweet us your recipe using the hashtag AM to DM. Yeah, Be I careful would, now. I would love to see what I'm going to make some. <laughs> Send it to me. Clearly solved. Coming pepper. up, Saeed Sassan with Tiny Harris. But up next, we're going live from the district with Paul McLeod to figure out who is going to be Trump's next chief of staff. Can't wait. Mm.
We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Hey, Paul. Hey, good morning. Are those sirens? Yeah, what is that? Yeah, there's a massive, something is going on because this just started a moment ago. Is is everyone like up against the window like we do here (laughs) in New York? Yeah, they are, and I'm the only one who can't really see, so oh, I don't sorry. know what's going on. Sorry Maybe about that. We're keeping you out of the way from all the <laughs> Maybe we'll get to break some news during this. Well, here's a tweet from Oliver Darcy. Whoa, he said, Nick Ayers will not be the next chief of staff as he won't take the job, a White House official tells CNN's Caitlin Collins. Ayers is not taking the job because the president and Ayers could not agree on terms, which, you know, seems significant if someone's possibly going to be chief of staff. Um, Paul, What's the latest on Ayers? Is this the last we will hear of him? Um, and what is what do we know about the role of the chief of staff? Who's going to be it? Yeah, I mean, Ayers might be in one of these ambulances heading away from the White House, uh, just trying <laughs> to get away from that job. He g- had it offered to him, uh, but decided, I think he's going back to uh, Georgia, where he's from. Uh, he, I mean, he's a young guy. He's 36 years old, I believe, sort of a, a rising star in uh, Republican circles. So I, I'm sure we will hear from him again, but not in this administration, or at least not right now. He has just decided that he did not want to do the job. They, I think, essentially, it was a disagreement about who he could bring in, how long they wanted him to do the job. I, it just didn't come together. So now the search is on. We need to find at least a temporary chief of staff by the end of the year, which is, of course, only a few weeks away. Why was he considered the front runner? And are there any other names that are being floated around? Or was it just him like he is the guy? He, he was immediately seen as the guy who it, it was his for the taking. Uh, Trump liked him. Um, people respected his brains. He was seen as a very savvy kind of game manager in, ter- in terms of running campaigns and, you know, with heading into a 2020, that's the kind of mind you want. Uh, but it just didn't work out. He didn't want it. So now, yeah, it's there. I think they're kind of scrambling. There's been a few names uh, thrown around. Uh, several people have come out and said that they don't want it. Uh, some names that, that are being tossed about, uh, Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, uh, Robert Lighthizer, who is uh, the U.S. trade representative, he just negotiated, renegotiated the NAFTA. So he's got some free time on his hands, so maybe he'll take the job. The one, I, uh, I was, I was going to go on and, and, uh, and talk about Mark Meadows, who was my favorite candidate for this. Like, I know Mark fairly well because, he, you know, covering uh, the House, and he would have been a really, really entertaining one because I mean, this is the guy who headed the group, the Freedom Caucus, that essentially bullied uh, Paul Ryan for the last two years and took control of the House. Uh, it would have been fascinating, but I just saw uh, before uh, coming on here that apparently he's not interested in the job, so that, that very interesting scenario is not going to come to pass. Just wait until John Kelly co-hosts the Oscars. Um, Here's a question. Uh, Is it worth reading into Nick Ayers and John Kelly's, you know, is it, I mean, I feel like I can read the tea leaves and say, well, this doesn't look good for the White House, or is this just how these searches tend to play out? Well, I mean, this definitely fits a pattern. You know, I don't want to shock you guys, but apparently it is difficult to work with Donald Trump. Uh, Kelly and him had a... I mean, famously contentious relationship where Kelly would just at, sometimes just storm out of the White House. They'd have, you know, be swearing at each other in these, these uh, arguments, and then he'd just be saying, I'm out of here and leave. I mean, we actually kind of were surprised that this relationship lasted as long as it did. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, Trump is his own man, right? Like, he's not going to be a focused group, uh, uh, you know, a reliably... Uh, 
honed <laughs> politician who's going to be able to stay on message and do what you want him to do and not say what you want him to not say. I mean, he's Trump. He's going to go out on Twitter. He's going to do his own thing. So if you are a, I mean, it's just a difficult position for anyone to be in. And we've seen this before that it's difficult uh, for, they've had difficulty filling key roles in the White House. And I mean, this is the, the biggest one of all. So yeah, I, I think it, they could have a hard time here. Well, moving along to more news from the weekend, here's a tweet from Washington Post Global Opinions Editor Karen Atia. This is insane. After Khashoggi's murder, Mr. Kushner has offered the Crown Prince advice about how to weather the storm, urging him to resolve his conflicts around the region and avoid further embarrassments. Okay, Paul, what was your initial reaction to this New York Times story? It's a really interesting read. It shows exactly how tight uh, that Kushner and MBS, the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia, how tight they are and how sort of throughout the, the entire Trump administration, uh, how the Saudis have, have fostered this relationship with Kushner, who is, of course, an immensely influential person in the White House. He and, he and Ivanka are in Trump's ears all the time. They are his most trusted advisors, even more so than uh, Kelly was, which is one of the points of contention and one of the reasons he's leaving. Uh, and it seems to have paid off. I mean, if you look at the positions of the Trump administration, it has been very pro-Saudi. Uh, even after the murder of Khashoggi, we've seen the Trump administration essentially stand with this country. Now, it, I, not that we can say necessarily that is entirely due to this relationship with Kushner, but it certainly doesn't hurt certainly doesn't hurt. I was also stunned over the course of the weekend. Uh, CNN, I believe, exclusively published a transcript where we uh, see presumably exactly how Jamal Khashoggi was killed. It is graphic and so disturbing. I saw that, and then I saw the news about Jared Kushner um, and MBS. Is the story over in terms of consequences? Like, or is this is this us looking in the past tense, or are there still going to be consequences unfolding for the White House and Saudi Arabia as this news continues to surface? I think if it was just up to the White House, then this would be over. But it's not just up to the White House. And Congress has a role here. And it's very much alive in Congress, this movement to, uh, well, to punish Saudi Arabia in, in their, exactly how that happens. There's some disagreement. It can be sanctions. It could be uh, cutting off arms sales. I mean, there's, there's different ways of, of going about it than actually the people. There, there's people on all sides of the map. I mean, we've got Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee, who's a Republican, are, are co-sponsoring a bill. I mean, but exactly what each one would do would be different. But certainly there is an appetite in Congress to do something but this to strike back, to basically say, this is not acceptable. We're not just going to roll over when you murder a journalist. But of course, they have been getting pushback from the White House, where they are still pretty closely allied with this regime. And I mean, that's one of the things that was just so striking about this story, that uh, Kushner and MBS continue to be in you know, sort of text message communication and formal back-channel communication, even now, even after all this has happened. Really stunning. Well, Paul, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. All right, thanks, guys. Cheers. Uh, during the segment, I got a tweet from my grandmother uh, in Garland, Texas. Saeed needs to learn how to cook. Grandma, we've talked about this. It's not happening. Uh, <laughs> up next, I sit down with Tiny. I'm excited to talk to her. Stay tuned. <laughs> Oh, 
All right, this is The Sit Down, and I'm joined by Tiny, star of T.I. and Tiny, Friends and Family Hustle. Good morning, yes, beautiful. Yes, good morning. It's so good to be here with you. You too. I love it. Okay, so your new show is a spinoff of, of the original. Uh, why did you decide to come back to reality TV after taking about a year off? I mean, you know, um, we kind of missed it, mm. you know, and the family was um, back together like we never left. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess it was just something for us to, you know, I really love doing TV. Okay. You know, and What do you so, love about it? What I love about it, I love doing it with my family. I, I mean, most of the shows I've done with, like, family mm -hmm. and friends, never on a cast where it's kind of like rah-rah. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy it. Okay. It's not like, you know, drama-filled. Not, not drama-filled. Yeah. I mean, watching the show, it makes Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta is kind of a small town in mm -hmm. some ways, but I'm just like, are you just regularly just going to be bumping into T.I. and Monica if you're just, like, going down Peachwood Dunwoody? Um, uh, yeah, you know, it's so many stars in Atlanta mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, everybody kind of is in the same area, yeah. you know? So, yeah, you will bump into Monica or T.I. Mm -hmm. and, you know, especially if you go out a little bit. Okay. You might see them, might see them yes. about. Um, well, you and T.I. are working things together, working things out after calling off your divorce, mm -hmm. which is, you know, one, something that I feel like we hear that's actually very relatable, like a lot of people are like, we're kind of separated, we're trying to right. figure it out, we might not have a title. What's it like doing this, you know, in the context of having people watching you, though? I mean, it's always, you know, a strain mm. because people like to give their opinions mm -hmm. and they see certain things on TV and they expect, they think that it's exactly like what mm -hmm. they see, so they, mm -hmm. you know, they um, form an opinion. Mm -hmm. On your relationships and really you know you only get to see a small bit of right. you know what's on TV so you know it, it's it's a little bit of uh, it's a little bit of work but you know you got to be strong individuals and just know who you are you know pretty much and just do what you do yeah and, and how did you get to that because again you know a, a lot of people love you and TI together like rooting for your marriage which is nice mm -hmm. but as you said you're an individual you're a woman trying to figure things out how did you learn to kind of say like I appreciate the fans I appreciate the love but like I need to do this for myself I mean you know I I give it a look I mean I'm always I look into it a mm -hmm. little bit and I take the great stuff and mm -hmm. I, I don't like to dwell on the negative okay. so anything that comes negative my way I'm gonna kind of like toss it out okay you know because that's how I stay grounded stay grounded yeah that's okay. how I stay like you know in a great spirit every day you know yeah. without I don't, negativity doesn't really reach me like that. Oh, well, good for you. <laughs> I can use that. It's I mean, in and out one ear. Okay. Out, you know. All right, just don't hold on to it. No. You hold on to it. Um, well, of course, over the weekend, like, thinking about this interview with you, mm -hmm. seeing the news about Offset and Cardi B, it was like, mm -hmm. oh, this is interesting. Uh, do you, is there any advice you would have for Cardi right now? I mean, you know, I think they love each other. So I just think that, it, you know, with time, things will get to where they need to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and he said, he tweeted, I think, just the other day that he I did, I saw her. that. What I was your reaction that. when you saw that? I thought it was sweet, you mm. know. He's fighting for his marriage, mm. so it's great. Okay, well, you know, you recently reunited with Xscape. Thank you. Yes. Blessings. <laughs> uh, what does it feel like to be recording and, and with your girls again? It's always great to get in with the girls and just be a part of, you know, what we started. I feel like I have the best girl group ever. So, you know, just being on the stage with four talented girls, you know, is amazing. Yeah. Just and to get the same kind of love. What I would say we're getting more love than we mm. ever got before. Really? Yeah. Because so, I was going to ask, what's the biggest change from when you guys were together in the 90s? Well, one, we've never headlined our own big arena tour. Okay. 
And okay. so this time we were able to headline, headline our own arena tour and sell out everywhere. Mm. So it was amazing feeling just to be back 25 years later and still be relevant. And just appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I was interested, you know, Candy Burris has said that she's not going to record new music. How, how do you feel about that? Uh, we're over it okay. now, you know. <laughs> You've moved on. Yeah, we're, we've moved on. You know, uh, the rest of the uh, three girls, we still love to, we love music, and mm -hmm. we still want to do what we do. So we won't stop, you know, if Candy wants to come back, mm -hmm. you know, we welcome her. But mm -hmm. if not, we're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. Kind of in one ear, out the other, like you were saying. Yeah, pretty much. Before. Well, I love this. Mona Scott Young's confirmed that an escape biopic is happening. Yeah. Uh, can you give us more details about the film? Yes. Um, well, you know, we're working hard on it, and um, I, I expect that it's going to be a really good film. Yeah. Uh, it may be out at the end of 2019, somewhere okay. in the wintertime. Okay. Yeah. Like a holiday kind of? Maybe September-ish, you know. Oh, okay. Those are the dates that I'm hearing, so hopefully okay. we're on schedule. Okay, okay. And you've already said that you would like your daughter to play you, which is like yes. smart, smart. Well, who would you like to play T.I.? Ooh. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> I... Maybe T.I. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, he is a great actor. He is a good actor. Yeah. Hmm. I'll, I'll let you think about that. I don't know. I, I haven't thought about that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I'm going to put some thought into that. Okay, okay. People, y'all can tweet us if you have ideas. Yeah. I like to hear give me some people's advice. ideas. Who, who Make you yourself think? useful, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and, and what's, it, what's it just been like kind of thinking about being in that part of your life to, to film? Um, I think it's it's going to be exciting just to see everything play out mm -hmm. and see it acted out. I think, um, you know, we lived it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to replay it and see it acted out, I think it's going to be exciting for mm -hmm. us as well. Hopefully they get all the truth and tell it all the right way mm -hmm. because, you know, it's four girls and we all got to tell our truth mm -hmm. and we all don't agree on the truth. Right. So um, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, got to make space for that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Tiny, thank you so so much for joining us this Thank morning. You. Thank delight. you for having me. And guys, you can watch T.I. and Tiny Friends and Family Hustle on Mondays on VH1. Tune in. All right, stay tuned for more AM to DM. Thank you so much. Welcome back. I'm Ariana Rebellini, and here's a tweet from Reina. I am a Jennifer's Body enthusiast first and a human being second. Louis Peitzman, BuzzFeed News Deputy Entertainment Editor, joins me now to talk about how this horror comedy classic wound up criminally underrated. Hey, Louis. Hi. On like a scale of one to that tweet, how do you feel about Jennifer's body? Like a 17. It's like Is pretty that, I don't know if that's like the one to 10. I'm, just, it's, I'm very <laughs> enthusiastic. I identify with that tweet a lot. Yeah. So you wrote this fantastic piece called You Probably Owe Jennifer's Body an Apology. Yes. Um, why should we be apologizing to this movie? Well, I mean, maybe you don't have to. Not everyone has to apologize. But yeah. certainly there were a lot of people who did not appreciate this movie when it came out, who dismissed it. And... As a society, I feel we owe Jennifer's body an apology for like missing the mark so badly nine years ago. Yeah, and you talked to the director, Karin Kusama, yes. and screenwriter Diablo Cody about their experience making this film. Right. Um, how did the marketing campaign really misinterpret what they were going for? So it was kind of a disaster. I mean, they had made the movie, uh, it was a movie made by women, 14 girls, and horror is usually geared toward um, young men, mm -hmm. young, straight, white men mostly. And so that was kind of the marketing campaign's idea, was like, how do we make this movie 
uh, how do we get like these boys to come see this movie? And that was never the intention of the of the writer or the director. Um, and so they kind of focused on Megan Fox being hot and made it about you know how sexy she is, and and that was sort of like the whole point. But it missed the movie, the point of the movie entirely. And so people who might have actually enjoyed it did not go see it. Yeah, and one thing was they felt that the queer subtext was kind of missed. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. So there's there is like queer subtext to this friendship in the movie. I mean Jennifer and Needy have this makeout scene, and so because the movie was sort of like marketed as this movie for straight teen boys, people who saw it thought that that kiss was kind of intended for them too, that it was a male gazy type thing of like, we're doing this to titillate male audiences, when really what Diablo Cody wanted to do and what Karin Kusama wanted to do is show that you know some of these friendships between teen girls like have a little bit of that, like, that queer subtext, that there might be yeah. something more going on there. Yeah, and so Megan Fox said, the film may have been overshadowed by the unrelenting, vampiric nature of the media's relationship to me at that time. Which I love as a quote. It's an amazing <laughs> quote. Yeah. Um, so how did that kind of misogyny that was directed at her affect this? Well, I mean, people really hated Megan Fox. Yeah. I mean, she was kind of this like rising star, and any sort of rising female star gets just like a ton of crap like you know hurled against them. Yeah. And the thing that really happened that kind of doomed the, the, the movie in a lot of ways is that right before it came out, she had this comment about Michael Bay being Hitler mm -hmm. that she got a lot of pushback for. And it probably wasn't the best thing to say, but I mean, <laughs> this whole like rivalry between her and Michael Bay, people were very much on his side. And she was sort of, you know, maligned for that for years. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like never really even came back from it. Not really. I mean, she has a show now and she seems like she's doing well, but I, I think that people really hated her for a long time. And a lot of it was just because she was this like gorgeous woman who was speaking out in a way that people did not appreciate. Yeah. And speaking of shows, so Diablo Cody mentioned that there is like an idea for a Jennifer's Body show. Right. Do you think we even deserve it? I, I mean, I think you and I deserve it. Yeah. I, um, I can't speak for America as a whole. No, I mean, I think that it would be, it's a great idea. I mean, mm. uh, she pointed out that like Buffy the Vampire Slayer had this movie that no one really cared about and then became a very popular TV show. Mm. And Jennifer's Body would be a great, like there's like, you know, if Netflix wanted to make a Jennifer's Body TV show, I think that it would do really well. Yeah. I think that audiences are ready for it now and um, I'd love to see it. It would kill. It would absolutely kill. Um, so why do you think audiences and critics are finally starting to appreciate Jennifer's body. Well, I mean, I think there, are, you know, there are lots of reasons. I think, um, you know, we've kind of come around on the idea of like difficult women is now like more of a thing, and the sort of tonal shifts of Jennifer's body now are more appreciated. People can kind of like have more horror in their comedy and more comedy in their horror. Um, but a lot of it is that people are just really angry. I think women are really angry. I think that a movie about um, sort of this like female revenge fantasy is just very timely in 2018. Um, and some of the big, th the feminist themes of the film, you know, are, are now sort of more. Um, widely embraced by the mainstream in terms of like, you know, audiences who are maybe weren't as tuned into that before now kind of understand what the movie is trying to say. Totally. I'm going to watch it tonight. <laughs> me too. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming, Lewis. Yeah. Thanks for um, having me. Up next, we're talking about the challenges faced by women who work in politics. Here's a tweet from Abby Livingston, who is the DC bureau chief for the Texas Tribune. Over a five-month period, I spoke to over 50 women who work in politics. There was an almost universal common thread. They're mad as hell. Well, Abby joins me now to talk about this piece she wrote for Political Magazine about the hardest glass ceiling in politics. Abby, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. 
So your piece was so fascinating because ever since the midterms, all we've been hearing is it's the year of the women. 42 new women were elected to the Senate and the House this year. But what you found was the numbers behind the scenes where we're looking at positions like campaign managers or pollsters don't really reflect the people elected into office, right? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, I will caveat. It's very difficult to determine the exact stats of how many consultants, campaign managers. But basically, what is going on is... um, so. Campaigns are extremely lucrative. If you if you break through and are a good consultant, you can be a millionaire. And the the what they do is they basically advise the campaign through television advertising, digital, direct mail, and polling. And what I sort of stumbled into last summer was that women are very prevalent in the world of politics, but they're, it's very difficult for them to break into those roles. Those are also the roles where strategy is determined. So a lot of the jobs that women do in political campaigning is taking orders from the strategists and implementing them rather than actually being a part of it. And when I first sort of got into this, I was stunned given that this wasn't just the year of the female candidate, it was the year of the female voter. And so it was a really interesting odyssey I went into. You mentioned that fundraising tends to be the only field within politics that is dominated by women. Why do you think specifically fundraising does have so many female people in it? And also, why do you think they haven't been able to break into this campaign manager strategist role? Well, so fundraising, there's there's some women enjoy it. And really, it's a great place for them. They can raise children and not have to be on the road all the time. And so it can be really a, a great job if you're a working mother. But there are women who don't want to do it, and it's the only avenue. And so they keep getting pushed into it. And I think one of the things is it's the job that a lot of people don't want to do. It's it's not fun to ask people for money. And so what they do is they a lot of them have tried to get into fundraising and then leverage that into campaign management. And I, ha- I know several examples of women who've done that successfully. But after a campaign winds down or maybe their campaign loses, the men try to put them back into fundraising. And so it's just an enormously frustrating uh, I think we. I will Oh no! You're breaking up a little bit. Right, I think we got you again. Uh, okay. It says my internet. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's cool. I don't know. Don't worry. Okay, good. I think we're good. Okay, we're back. Good thing. Okay, so one of the things that you mentioned was uh, that there is a ton of money at stake here, correct? Like people can become millionaires from these positions. Do you think that that does hurt women as well, that they're not seen to like take these high money, high pressure positions? Well, it was explained to me by one woman, I didn't put it in the story, but this is about money and power. And these are the last vestiges of men having control of the campaigns and they just don't want to give it up. These are the fun jobs, not just the ones that you make money, uh, but they have somewhat of a monopoly on it. And so it's extremely difficult for these women to build up the client list to be able to have the reputation to run big campaigns. Yeah, it's kind of the chicken or the egg. Like, if you never get an opportunity, how can you build it up? Well, I really did enjoy your piece. I would encourage everyone to read it. It's a great read, and you have a lot of really powerful anecdotes in there. One of them, I can't remember who the woman was, but she said that she went to a meeting for this type of senior role while she was pregnant, and she felt like she knew she lost the job as soon as the candidate, who was herself a woman, saw that she was pregnant. Do you have an anecdote that stuck out to you? 
I would say that one. I think the other one was that got a lot of attention was a female member of Congress actually runs her political staff meetings with a man in the room assigned to repeat what she says because she feels like the men on her staff do not listen to her, but they will listen to it coming from a male voice. And so it's it's a very pragmatic tactic, but it's a little sad too because this is a very dynamic woman. And I'd want to hear what she had to say if, if I was on her staff. Wow, that is disgusting. <laughs> you can see why the women are mad, right? We're all mad because you hear things like that and you're like, okay, great, cool. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it comes down to empathy and listening. And I, I, I think we're moving in that direction and hopefully the story helped with that. I hope so too. Well, Abby, I encourage everyone to read your story. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Thank you for having me. Up next, Saeed and I are reading your tweets. Welcome back. Okay, now we can finally talk about chicken again. You're Welcome to, to get... cooking with Saeed and Steph. <laughs> but apparently you don't cook. I don't. But listen to this, children. Okay, I do not cook. But I have garlic. I have multiple versions of salt and pepper uh, in my in my cupboard. So if, if sister girl Saeed has seasoning in his barren kitchen, you certainly should be seasoning your chicken. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, you guys said there's so many cool chicken mm -hmm. recipes, chicken seasoning. I kind of want to try them all. Yep. Here's one from Sylvia Brown. She said, typically use Tony's Creole seasoning. I'm upgraded from Lowry's. If I'm doing a chicken breast you use for other meals, a simple salt and pepper sprinkle. <laughs> Let it sit for two minutes while the oil heats. Add season side down to oil and season the other side. That okay, Sylvia great. gave us a whole yeah. recipe. Rachel Ho Girlfield said, uh, depends on the recipe for simple roasting. Olive oil, I do love rosemary. I yeah. love rosemary. Fresh if possible, salt, pepper. Uh, if I am judged, so be it. I think this is, that sounds no. great. I found that olive oil is like very key. Like just like loaded on there because yeah. like you oh, know yeah. without it oh. and the seasoning like it's just yeah. super super dry and i will say this i don't cook but i eat you can't go wrong with rosemary and chicken like no. when in doubt no. you know salt Limit. pepper olive oil rosemary yeah stacy singleton he has another one for us kosher salt pepper granulated garlic and herbs de provence or smoked paprika. I'm really getting all the French things today <laughs> this is my question about growing up with paprika does it taste does it have a yeah i, I I, mean, I liked I it when I was a little kid because it looks like dramatic and fun, but I don't ever taste paprika. I think it has like a very slight taste. Mm. Okay. I don't know. Let us know if y'all have like, if you really want paprika. I can't paprika. describe how it tastes, yeah, but I think yeah. it does have a taste. I feel like I can smell it, but I can't taste it. Yeah. Uh, Pix Maven tweeted this. Uh, depends. There are a lot of a lot of variations in my repertoire, uh, but more than often not, it involves curry mixes, yogurt, garlic, onions, dried fenugreek? Fenugreek what is leaves? that? I don't know what that Fix is. Fixed you have to let us know what that is. Fenugreek. Also, I, I'm liking the yogurt. I'm liking the curry. That all sounds very, Cur very good. Curry sounds like that would be nice. And, yeah. and different. These are all very different ways to cook chicken, yeah. but you're cooking it and you're seasoning it. Yeah, so. I need to know what that what that leaf <laughs> thing is. I don't know. Uh, well, keep sending them to us. I, you know, I'm trying to cook and cook healthy. So, like, give me all your chicken recipes. I'll make all of them. You can, Let's like, mail me something if it's yeah, good. Yeah, you can email it to me. I'm gonna cook it. Well, thank you to our guests, Ryan Broderick, Zoe Tillman, Paul McLeod, Tiny, Louis Peitzman, Ariana Rebellini, and Abby Livingston. All right, children, we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. See you there. I'm going to go watch the Oprah video. <laughs> <laughs> just watch it again. It's just so fun. <laughs>